Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Bad Philosopher podcast. Today, we're going to be starting off with an analysis of an ancient Greek myth about a ruthless king who tricked the gods in order to escape his own death. That king's name was Sisyphus. In this myth, Sisyphus's trickery was eventually found out, and the gods condemned him to roll a boulder up a hill in the underworld again and again for all of eternity. And the reason we're going to be talking about this myth of Sisyphus is that the existentialist and absurdist philosopher Albert Camus used the myth of Sisyphus as an analogy for the human condition. I mean, the title of his essay slash book that we're going to be looking at today is actually called The Myth of Sisyphus. But how is it that a myth about eternal toil in the underworld could be used as a proxy for the human condition, I wonder? Well, let's take a look. Published in 1942, while Camus was living in Nazi-occupied Paris and working with the French Resistance Movement, The Myth of Sisyphus examines the human condition and tries to look at how we can find meaning in this inherently meaningless world of ours. To start, I'm going to begin with an analysis of the Sisyphus myth itself. Something that's always bothered me about this myth is the idea of Sisyphus rolling a boulder up a hill. It's very light on specifics, and I do like to get into the technical details of things like this. So I do have two primary source texts to look at to get an idea of where this Sisyphus myth comes from. The first one is from Ovid's Metamorphosis. To quote Ovid, Sisyphus, the son of Aeolus, was a daring robber who infested Attica. He was slain by Theseus, and being sent to the infernal regions, was condemned to the punishment of rolling a great stone to the top of a mountain, which it had no sooner reached than it fell down again, and renewed his labor. The second primary source I'm looking at is from the Odyssey, where Odysseus sees Sisyphus when he's sort of journeying on this quest to the underworld. And I quote from Odysseus, And I saw Sisyphus at his endless task, raising this prodigious stone with both his hands. With hands and feet, he tried to roll it up to the top of the hill, but always, just before he could roll it over onto the other side, its weight would be too much for him, and the pitiless stone would come thundering down again onto the plain. Then he would begin trying to push it uphill again, and the sweat ran off of him and the steam rose after him. So what we know from these two source texts is that Sisyphus was condemned to some sort of punishment, he's located in the underworld, and his punishment is to roll a great stone or boulder up to the top of a mountain or hill. And each time he gets that boulder to the top of the hill, it rolls back down again, and he has to start over. Presumably this cycle is going to go on for all of eternity with Sisyphus rolling the boulder up to the top of this hill and then having it roll back down to the bottom, start over again, and repeat forever. So let's jump into a couple different ways that this sort of punishment could actually function. And I'll lay out a couple of different options here. So option one, this is the original sort of position that seems to be hinted at here. Sisyphus rolls his boulder up to the top of the hill. Each time he reaches this summit, the boulder is not able to stay in place and it rolls all the way back down. Sisyphus then has to walk down, grab the same exact boulder, and try bringing it up the same exact hill again. So as a punishment, this would be the toil of creating something or achieving something and then having it smashed in your face and being told to start over again. And this is sort of the toil of the mortal life as formulated by Albert Camus. So the punishment in this formulation is that Sisyphus has to repeat the same task repeatedly. 
In a sense, it requires someone to be an optimist here in order to continue this task forever. Maybe each time he reaches the top, he hopes, you know, this time the boulder won't roll down from the peak and my task will be done. But with each completion of this task, failure happens again. Sisyphus has to march down the hill and start again. So note that in this formulation, it's the same boulder every time being rolled up the same hill. I'd like to propose a few alternatives to this endless toil and have you tell me which would be the worst of them all. In what I'll call option two, we have Sisyphus rolling this boulder up this hill, but he can only ever get it partway before it rolls back down. The hill is a fixed height, but the task itself is impossible. Maybe the further he goes, the heavier the boulder gets until it becomes infinitely heavy that even though the hill is not infinitely long, he can never get there. He only gets part of the way up, and the boulder rolls down. This would be the toil of perpetual failure. Maybe it's a more pessimistic version of Sisyphus's punishment, because he never gets to achieve that small victory of actually reaching the top of the hill. If we're going to equate this version of the myth to real life, then it would be like someone who's doomed to forever failing and never really getting anywhere in life. Although, a realist could ar also argue that fundamentally it doesn't matter at all whether you reach the top of the mountain or not. I mean, either way, the boulder rolls back down anyways. Similarly, one could argue that in life it doesn't matter if we're met with momentary success or perpetual failure. Either way, we're all still Sisyphus rolling the boulder. Now let's look at option three, another alternative. So in this formulation... Sisyphus doesn't have to roll the same boulder every single time. When he gets the boulder to the top of the hill, it stays there. But what he has to do next is walk down to the bottom of the hill and start again with a brand new boulder. His endless task becomes the task of rolling an infinite number of boulders up a hill that gets progressively larger as he goes. The more times he completes this task, the bigger the hill of boulders gets and the harder the next completion of the task gets. In a way, this is a bit of an eternal optimist's point of view of this punishment. It's sort of the never-ending task of building our civilization as we know it. We build upon what past generations have done, just as Sisyphus builds on an ever-larger pile of boulders. It's just that he has this eternal life, this eternal toil. The problem here isn't an ambiguity about whether or not he'll be successful with the boulder this time, or whether he'll have to start again. It's rather the problem of having to continually start a new task, a new but identical task, and subsequently, every time it's completed, it'll become harder and harder for all of eternity. But maybe in this formulation, Sisyphus would take some solace in the idea of progress. Sure, the number of boulders left to place is always going to be infinite, but with each successful placement of a new boulder, Sisyphus can step back and celebrate how far he's come. This is the mark of progress of some kind. So, with option one, it was a bit of a Groundhog Day scenario. Each day you would complete a task, and then the next day everything gets reset and you start the same task again with the same inevitable outcome. But here, in option three, there's no resetting to a blank slate. Instead, your each subsequent day is going to look and feel identical to the day before, only each day will become a little bit harder to get through than the last. Maybe for our modern brains, there's some novelty to be found here in the idea of progress. In our society, the need for perpetual progress, however menial that might be, even if it's fundamentally no different than stacking boulders higher and higher up on a hill, this need for progress seems to be ingrained in us. If we're not progressing, we're backsliding. It's only through perpetual progress in material assets or career or whatever it may be, 
This is the only way we feel as though we're actually living. So this third option here hijacks our modern brains and fools us into thinking that we're making progress with our growing mound of boulders. But if we were Sisyphus in this scenario, we would eventually come to realize that this idea is an illusion that no matter how far we've progressed, we still always have infinitely far to go. And finally, we have the fourth option. This would be the punishment of rolling a boulder up an infinite hill. One can never reach the summit, but on the bright side, the boulder can never roll back down. This hill doesn't have a beginning, and it doesn't have an end. If the boulder ever slips and rolls down, it'll come to a rest at some point where it can be retrieved and, you know, progress can continue. But the problem here is that any progress is always an illusion because the task is always infinitely far away from being completed. There's not much drama in this version of the punishment. There's no real low points, but no high points either. There's no summiting the mountain and getting a small glimmer of success. Maybe the distance to the summit always gets further and further away as one proceeds, so the distance to go to the summit increases with every step you take. So my question with all of these options, no matter which one is the actual punishment, would be, what keeps Sisyphus rolling the boulder? I mean, I think he's probably compelled in some way because there's nothing else for him to do. Say you were locked in the underworld at the foot of a giant hill and your only thing to do was either stand around doing nothing or rolling a giant boulder up a hill. What would you do? And if that doesn't make sense, think about life in general. We're locked into these lives and our options are either we sit around doing nothing or we go about our lives eating, drinking, working, entertaining ourselves, sleeping, and then repeating all of that again. With everything else removed, Sisyphus is in the underworld where he doesn't need to do any of these other mortal things anymore. What else is there to do other than to roll his boulder and carry out his punishment? So let's take a few moments here to recap these different options. In the original position, in option one, Sisyphus rolls a boulder up a hill. Whenever he reaches the top, the boulder falls back down and rolls down the hill again. At this point, Sisyphus has to march down to the bottom of the hill and start the task all over again. The same boulder, the same hill. And then in option number two, Sisyphus never actually reaches the top of the hill at all. At some point, the boulder becomes too heavy and rolls back down, so he has to start all over again. Same boulder, same hill. But the task is impossible, and he can never summit that hill. Sisyphus never gets to enjoy any momentary success or feeling of accomplishment. His work is always unfinished and incomplete. In option three, Sisyphus is rolling a boulder up a hill, and when he reaches the top, he places it there. It doesn't roll back down, but Sisyphus himself has to go back down to the bottom of the hill, retrieve a new boulder, and start the task anew. He has to roll this new boulder to the top of the hill, again, and place it on the hill as well, and so on ad infinitum, infinite boulders, and a task that gets more difficult with each success because the hill keeps getting higher with new boulders. Here, eternity becomes a true enemy because the further towards eternity you get, the more difficult your life and your task become. Then in option four, Sisyphus never reaches the top of the hill at all. The hill itself is eternal and endless. But his burden isn't so great, he never needs to restart from the bottom. The hill has no beginning and no end. Sisyphus' work is never restarted, but he also never makes any progress either. I would say that number two is functionally the same as number one. The only difference is that in number two, one never gets that momentary success at the top of the hill. You're always pushing the same boulder, and it's always the same hill, and you can see the top, but you never actually get there. 
if we concede this idea that success is an illusion, then it doesn't functionally matter whether the punishment is number one or number two. If one detaches oneself from caring about outcomes, then number one and number two are basically the same. You're rolling the same boulder up the same hill no matter what. It's only when we care about achievement or some idea of success that these options seem different, when in fact the toil itself, the labor, is identical. At least with option number four, with the eternal hill with no beginning and no end, we don't have any illusion of progress or purpose. Imagine it like an eternal treadmill, the track is just spinning round and round. I think number four is actually closer to our reality because any achievement we think we can achieve doesn't actually mean much on a long enough timescale. The universe eventually ends, so anything we build will be gone too. And same with life, a successful person and an unsuccessful person meet the same end, the same oblivion. At least in option number four, we sort of see the truth of things, that progress itself is an illusion. But why would the gods have chosen option number one for Sisyphus? I think because it mimics life most closely. It presents us with an illusion that there is some purpose to it, some meaning to achieve, some success to eventually realize. It's also an irony. Sisyphus was trying to evade death, and so his punishment is an eternal life of meaningless toil that mimics life but without any of those life things that make us happy. Sisyphus doesn't get food or drink or pleasure and so on. In my mind, I think option number three with the infinite number of boulders rolled up an increasingly large hill is the worst possible outcome. Because if we're eternal optimists about this, we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're making this great progress. We can always look back on how far we've come, how big the hill is becoming. We have an infinite distance to go, but we can always look at how far we've gone. But as the task continues to be endless and more and more difficult, we'll eventually reach burnout. That's inevitable. We can't keep going like that sustainably. And this endless task of infinite boulders up an increasingly large hill, this is a sort of a modern idea, I would say. This original myth was formulated back in ancient times where civilizations didn't change much from one generation to the other. Back then, the idea of building higher and higher upon the past would have been a novelty, but now it's the paradigm of progress that we're living in. Now that we're in this era of perpetual and unending progress, we can see the cracks that form in this type of system. So all of that said, which option would be the worst for you? What type of Sisyphean punishment would be the worst thing you could imagine for yourself? I know for me, the idea of the infinite boulders building upon themselves is kind of a nightmare, but that's also ironic to say because, in a way, that's the work of philosophy. We're placing more and more philosophical boulders upon this higher and higher mountain of wisdom, and the peak gets harder and harder to summit because of the complexity of more and more knowledge being added to it all the time. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how you paint this endless toil. In the end, the punishment itself is absurd. Either way, you're stuck rolling a boulder up a hill for all of eternity. The myth of Sisyphus is an example of what Albert Camus would call an absurd existence. A life where one's only purpose is to roll a boulder to the top of a hill for eternity. I mean, what kind of life is that? Camus would equate this toil with the toil of our lives in general. But for me, I do think there is something missing a bit for modern readers like us. So I would like to propose a total alternative to the Sisyphus boulder rolling up a hill punishment. 
I don't think this type of punishment or lifestyle is something that we in the 21st century can comprehend. I mean, when was the last time you did any sort of physical toil that wasn't voluntary in some way? I think that for the modern audience, we need a more modern sort of punishment to fully comprehend this concept of an absurd existence. So with this picture of an absurd existence I want to create here, let's do away with the boulder and the hill entirely, and replace them with a symbolic boulder and hill. I mean, that's what Camus was getting at when he was writing this back in 1942. He was getting at Sisyphus as being a symbolic figure of human existence itself. He was arguing that if you take a step back and look at our predicament, we're all just engaged in this meaningless toil of rolling a boulder up a hill our whole lives. There's no greater purpose to it all, no meaning to be had. In a way, life is our prison, our punishment. So what we'll do instead for the modern 21st century audience is create a computer-simulated reality. And within this simulated reality, we'll create a simulated being, and this will be our Sisyphus. In this simulated reality, our Sisyphus will experience various facets of life as we know it now. They'll be born, they'll go through childhood, they'll become an adult, they'll grow old, and eventually they'll die. This is the hill, the life they live, the reality they exist in. For the boulder, we have the motions of daily life, the waking up, commuting, going to work, dealing with the dull reality of everyday life, the mundane things we all have to do that we don't really want to do, the planning for the future, and so on. So that all sounds pretty normal so far, right? Well, the punishment is this. At every conscious moment in our simulated Sisyphus life, they will be fully aware that they are living in this computer-simulated reality. They won't be able to deceive or trick themselves into believing in any other purpose or meaning in life. The non-existence of any divine creator or god is known to them. All they can be sure of throughout the entirety of their lives is that they live inside of a simulated reality. That everyone they know and love is a simulated being. That they themselves are also a simulated being, made up of binary code, just ones and zeros. And this is the only metaphysical truth that they will ever be certain of because of how we've programmed this simulation. It's a truth that they will never be able to forget. Oh, and the other sure thing that this simulated being would share with us is that they'll eventually die. And when they die, there will only be oblivion. They'll be erased from the computer database, any evidence of their existence essentially wiped clean. They'll never know anything of the real world that their simulated reality is running in. So I know this might sound a bit harsh and a little bit bleak, but I do have a question for everyone listening. What if this was the world that we live in right now? What if reality as we know it is actually a computer simulation and all of us are simulated beings? So of course, in our own reality, we're not being punished with certain knowledge about this simulation existing. Instead, we're just allowed to believe whatever we want to believe. But this is our prison, or our punishment, or whatever you want to call it. Instead, our punishment is uncertainty. It's a fundamental lack of purpose, a lack of meaning. No truth about our existence can ever be proven or disproven, whether it be the existence of a god or the simulation itself. If we did somehow become aware and know for certain that we were living in a simulated reality like this, would life still be worth living? I think we can all agree here that this existence would itself be absurd. Maybe even more absurd than the myth of Sisyphus being used by Camus. Because Sisyphus was a mortal man with memories of his real life. But in this simulation, nothing we encounter is actually real. 
The main difference for us in this simulated reality is that we are given a choice that Sisyphus didn't get or doesn't have. The choice for us would be either you live this meaningless simulated life until you inevitably die, or you choose to opt out early by voluntarily ending your life. Would this choice change how we see things? Camus says yes. The choice between living an absurd life or instead ending your life changes things significantly. In the mythological punishment, Sisyphus didn't have the option of ending his existence. His punishment was eternal. But for us mortals, the introduction of death into the equation is what makes us human. Death is fundamental to the human experience, whether we are aware of that or not. In the last episode of the podcast, we discussed Nietzsche's God is dead proclamation and spent some time discussing the gravity of what he was saying. Just to quickly recap that discussion, Nietzsche in saying that God is dead isn't playing the part of some self-congratulatory atheist. He isn't gloating about it, in fact he's concerned. This naturally leads us into a situation where maybe there isn't any real meaning in life at all. We looked at Marie Wollstonecraft saying that if there's no immortal soul, no divine purpose in life, then maybe the most rational thing for us to do is to go on a hedonistic binge to our heart's content. Maybe the pursuit of pleasure would be the real purpose in life, something that could give us meaning. We also looked at the Bhagavad Gita, where the supreme being Vishnu shows themselves to the warrior prince Aryuna and basically says that death for all beings is inevitable. I am time, destroyer of all. That's what the supreme deity of Hinduism says. And if we translate this into a secular metaphysics, there is some truth here. The one truth in life isn't that we live in a simulation, it's that in time, everyone and everything that's living today will eventually die. And this same truth persists if we're living in this hypothetical simulated reality too. In this case, we're all simulated beings who will also eventually die. Nietzsche talks about this inevitability of death briefly also. In passage number 278 of The Joyous Science, he starts off saying, and I quote, It fills me with the melancholy happiness to live in the midst of this confusion of streets, of needs, of voices. How much enjoyment, impatience, and desire, how much thirsty life and drunkenness of life comes into view here every day. And yet, it will soon be so still for all of these noisy people, the living with their thirst for life. So here, Nietzsche seems to be describing the pursuit of pleasure as described by Marie Wollstonecraft. He's kind of saying that in this more secularized world, this is what people gravitate towards, a thirst for life rather than reason or virtue. Nietzsche also goes on to say in this passage that a dark shadow looms over everyone with their thirst for life, and that's the shadow of death. He alludes to the idea that people with this thirst for life often forget the past and treat the future as though it's an all-important thing in their lives. The future is where the next great pleasure comes from, after all. Once we've experienced some sort of pleasure in life, the only way to get more is to find it somewhere in our future. And think of how often we plan for this kind of thing. We make weekend plans, we plan vacations, we plan celebrations of all kinds. Nietzsche goes on to say, and I quote, Everyone wants to be preeminent in this future, and yet death and the stillness of death are the only things that are certain and common to all in this future. How strange that this one certainty and commonality has almost no power over men, and that nothing is further from their minds than the brotherhood of death. 
I am glad that men try to avoid the thought of death altogether. I should like to do something to make the thought of life still a hundred times more memorable. So like Krishna or Vishnu in the Bhagavad Gita, Nietzsche is recognizing that the one true thing for all human beings is the inevitability of death. And even so, Nietzsche is reading like a bit of an eternal optimist. He's happy that people have such a thirst for life in spite of their mortality, and he even expresses that he wants to make this thirst for life even greater still. He does, though, seem to think that it's odd that this is how human beings operate, with this sort of blissful ignorance about mortality. At least when we're in the throes of a thirst for life, that does seem to be the case. But I think Nietzsche also misses the mark a bit here. Sure, we do sort of forget about our mortality when we're busy indulging in the finer things in life, and we also spend quite a bit of time worrying and thinking about our future lives and planning for the future, whether that's accumulating things, buying things, planning vacations, planning for retirement, and so on. But what about death? Is it really a good thing that we don't spend much time thinking about the inevitability of death or about our mortality? It's such a cliche thing to say, but it's true that we don't know what tomorrow will bring, and nobody can predict their own death. It's the one certain thing we face in life. Yet when we lay our heads down to sleep on our pillows at night, it's not usually death that we're thinking of. We usually fall asleep thinking about the future. I mean, at least I do. We fall asleep thinking about what we have to do tomorrow when we wake up, or thinking about our weekend plans, or that vacation that's coming up in a few weeks. And I think this is probably natural in humans. It's funny that Nietzsche doesn't actually mention death very often in The Joyous Science. I mean, he spends a lot of time talking about the death of God, but very little time talking about our deaths, the death of a mortal life. Nietzsche perpetuates this same trap, the one certainty we all face is our own death, and yet the aftermath of Nietzsche's death of God is an emphasis on the future, what we're going to do about it, what kind of morality we're going to live by with no divine creator in the picture, no heaven or hell, and what is this going to mean for the future of humanity? Later existentialist thinkers will emphasize the fact that there are powerful moments in our lives where thoughts about death become preeminent in our mind. And this might be the anxiety around death, like the fear of cancer or some terminal illness taking us out prematurely, or it could be thoughts of taking things into our own hands and choosing to end our lives for any number of reasons. This is where we might get familiar with the term existential crisis. In our modern usage, this signifies a feeling of meaninglessness or a feeling of a lack of purpose in our lives. Whatever the root cause, during an existential crisis we become confronted with the idea that our lives are inherently devoid of meaning, or that we don't have any higher purpose to go by, or that we come to some realization that the life we're living isn't as valuable as we once thought it was. Death seems to be a central theme here when going through an existential crisis. Life only has meaning and purpose and value in relation to death. It's through that inevitability of death that we ultimately define our lives. Imagine how much easier life would feel, how much ease you would feel if you woke up tomorrow morning and realized that you were immortal and could never die. I mean, assuming you don't have to roll a boulder up a hill for eternity, that wouldn't be too bad, right? But would you still be in any rush to accumulate or attain some future state that you've been aiming at? Or would you take the day off, sit back and relax? I mean, in an immortal life, you have an abundance of time, so why take things hastily? Why not take a long vacation where you can do whatever you want, or nothing at all? But wouldn't this immortal life also seem kind of meaningless and take the wind out of your sails a little bit? Given enough time, any person can accomplish anything they set their minds to. 
I mean, say you wanted to become some entrepreneur and build a company or become a billionaire or become president of some affluent country. No idea why you'd ever want to do that, but let's just say that's the case. Sure, this kind of task is very difficult given time constraints. We don't always have the amount of time we need in our careers to achieve these big lofty goals we might have set for ourselves. I mean, some successful business people or politicians expand their careers into their 80s and 90s. It's sort of like a cheat code to attaining anything. If you can work a decade longer than your competitors, then you have that much higher of a chance of actually achieving what you wanted to achieve. And if you had an immortal life, you could take things real slow. Instead of a career spanning a few decades, yours could easily span a few centuries or even millennia. That's nothing in the context of an immortal life. And think of the advantage you'd have here, the gift of time. You'll know that you can take as long as you'd like, and you'll be able to achieve any goal you set your mind to eventually, given enough time. But if we step back and think about what we would gain from an immortal life, I think there would be a long list of downsides to go with this as well. I mean, first and foremost, life would become too easy, maybe too boring. If we define the meaning of life in opposition to the fact that we have a limited amount of time that we all eventually die, well... What do we do if death was no longer a factor? What would give our lives meaning then? In many ways, the game of life is the way it is because we're inherently time-limited, and we're aware of this. We have limited time to achieve our goals, and we have to sometimes be very specific about what we're going to achieve given a certain amount of time. The existential crisis might be rooted in our confrontation with death and how it relates to meaning given this time constraint. If we're thirsty for life and we encounter anxiety about death, we might be encountering the fact that the way we've been living up until now was not fulfilling. I mean, it's a very common trope in society to hear about someone who realizes one day that they've spent the last two decades building up their career, only to realize that now they're getting old and time is passing them by and they're missing out on the important things in life. This kind of realization can spark an existential crisis, the idea that we've missed the meaningful things and the purposeful things because we were lured into this trap of accumulation without ever reflecting on our mortality. The other possibility for someone facing an existential crisis is the realization that life has no inherent value, and so the thought of ending our lives might become forefront in our minds. And this is where Albert Camus comes in. Camus begins his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, with the following statement, and I quote, Judging whether life is or is not worth living amounts to answering the fundamental question of philosophy. So right from the get-go, Camus is immediately framing this tension between life and death as the most important thing a philosopher can think about. I mean, if we were to judge life to be not worth living, then this would make life an inherent form of punishment, sort of like Sisyphus's punishment. If it weren't worth living, that means that every waking moment we'd be better off dead. So there's a lot at stake in this calculus, and to figure out the answer whether life is or is not worth living, Camus wants to reason this out. He ponders whether there's some logic behind death, what the point of it is. To get there, he starts off grappling with the meaning of life, and this is where we encounter Camus' notion of the absurd, the absurd existence. To illustrate the absurdity of life, let's paint a picture. In our daily lives, we wake, we commute to our jobs, or if we're lucky, we don't need to commute and we just plop down in front of our computers in our pajamas. We eat, we work some more, we eventually go home, we eat again, and then we go to sleep. Rinse and repeat, five days per week. Camus says, and I quote, This path is easily followed most of the time, but one day the why arises, and everything begins in that wariness tinged with amazement. 
So what he means by that is that we come to realize this tension in various ways. We start questioning why we're doing what we're doing, why we hold this job instead of that one, or why we spend our time doing this instead of that. Or maybe we start pondering the future and the time that we have left in this life. In many ways, we live for the future, but that itself is absurd because we recognize that death is in our future too. So that earlier passage from Nietzsche that we looked at, he makes the point that everyone who's living shares this brotherhood and death, as he calls it. The idea that all of us are going to die eventually. It's the one thing we have in common, yet it's something that we don't think about at all. Camus identifies why this is. He says that everyone lives their lives as if no one really knew about death, or at least death is sort of avoided in that way. He says, and I quote, This is because in reality there is no experience of death. Properly speaking, nothing has been experienced but what has been lived and made conscious. He makes the point that we can't speak of the experience of others' deaths. To do so is only an illusion. We can't know the experience of death until we experience it. We're not convinced by our own assumptions about what this experience entails. Sure, while we might see the deaths of others and this might spark an existential crisis or a re-examining of the meaning in our own lives, we don't actually experience death directly. The absurdity of life itself prevents that. If we experienced death, we'd be dead. It's through being alive that we don't know what death really is. You can't live death or be conscious of your death, of an experience you haven't had. Yet we are conscious of the inevitability that death will come in time. Not only that, but society is paradoxical when it comes to death. We hear about deaths reported often. This person went missing, or their body was found, or there was an accident, or a killing, and X number of people died. But we don't confront death. We don't viscerally see it or understand it or know what those people went through. When we encounter or deal with death, what we do is we celebrate life. We hear about the details of how they lived. Very rarely do we hear the details of how they died. One thing I've always found interesting about obituaries and other notices about death is how rarely they mention the cause or the why behind it. Just sort of a factual statement. X person died and here's the facts of their life. I feel like in a way this causes some sort of cognitive dissonance. This person just died, that's it? Can I just die at any moment? If I could only know the cause or the details, maybe it's something that I can make sure to watch out for in my daily life. But instead, we're simultaneously bombarded with death, yet detached from the process of death itself. I would argue that in many ways we have this same experience with life. We're simultaneously bombarded with messages about how we should live, but detached from the process of actually living. Or we're always confronted with ideas about our future selves and the future state we want to achieve, but we never actually arrive in this idealized future. Like Sisyphus rolling a boulder up an eternal hill, even as we approach this idealized future we hold, the goalpost inevitably shifts further and further away from us into the future. As we go through the routines of our daily lives, our regular lives, these liberal capitalist lifestyles most of us live, we at some point will inevitably begin to question the why behind it all. Call this disillusionment or burnout, we're now calling it in modern times the Great Resignation. People are awakening to the fact that our modern lives don't confer much meaning anymore, and meaning is really important to us. When past generations lived tougher lives, paradoxically, things were easier in some ways. You had to work to survive. Whether as hunter-gatherers or agrarian farmers, for most of human history, most people have had to toil away just to put food on the table. 
failure at this daily toil meant death. We walked this thin line between existence and non-existence just by nature of our everyday lives. Any number of things could kill us. There wasn't time to go through disillusionment or burnout. People were keenly aware that not contributing and not toiling away could lead to their demise. That was incentive enough. That was the why behind it all. But in the modern world, this same incentive does not exist. We don't need to work to survive. We work to enjoy an abundance of things. But that's not enough. And we can see why by looking at this theory of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So this very basic hierarchy has five levels. At the very bottom is basic physiological needs to survive, you know, food, water, shelter, rest. And once we have those things, we naturally start looking to the next level of needs, which would be safety and security. If people don't have their basic physiological needs met, food, water, safety, they'll do anything they need to attain those needs, with reckless abandon if need be. They'll take risks, attempt to take from others if they have to, Safety and security themselves are moot points if you're about to starve to death. But once you have your basic physiological needs met, the food, water, and shelter, the next phase is to attain safety and security. And we get this by forming into organized groups, towns, villages. We can form militias and armies, and we form law and order and hierarchies. Once we have safety and security in some form or another, we need more still. Now we get into the psychological needs of Maslow's hierarchy. As a civilization, once our basic needs were taken care of and our security was ensured, the next step was to establish relationships. A family, intimate relationships, friends. Marriage was a big innovation in arranging to have this need met in an increasingly organized world. Marriage as an institution provided stability, and this is how human society plugged along for a long time. And then we got into the fourth step on the hierarchy, which was the esteem needs. Prestige and a feeling of accomplishment. This is when people start becoming property owners and so on. This first starts with an upper class of society, but then over time we've evolved that to include a middle class as well. And today we obtain prestige in the modern age through professional accomplishments or attaining greater and greater wealth and possessions. The fifth and final step on this hierarchy, and it's the one I think we're struggling the most with today, is the need for self-actualization. This is where we're able to achieve our full potential. Once we've mastered all of the other prior needs, we need something further in our lives. We need meaning and purpose. This is where Albert Camus' idea of the absurd comes in. We don't encounter the absurd when we're lower in the needs hierarchy. We are rational beings in need of meaning. And what greater meaning could there be in our lives other than food and water and shelter? And then, of course, we need security and safety. These are all very extremely rational needs. And the next rational need is relationships. A lot of meaning is created through relationship building. But once we start turning inwards and looking towards those prestige and esteem needs and the self-actualization needs, that's where the cracks begin to form. Whereas our prior needs largely come from the external world, the higher on the hierarchy we go, the more our needs are focused on the inward world of our own lives. I mean, look at the need for prestige and accomplishment. We live in this hyper-capitalist world where the stakes are continually raised in order to go on achieving and accomplishing more and more things. One doesn't gain prestige by staying exactly where they are in the hierarchy for an indefinite period of time. We don't gain these positive feelings by coasting along. We only gain these esteem needs through growth of some kind, accomplishment. And then the real trouble starts when we try to self-actualize. 
I mean, how does one self-actualize in a world that often tells us what our lives should look like and what we should hope to achieve? Self-actualization means we're creating our own meaning and our own purpose. And these aren't things we can get from the external world at all. It comes from within. The external world can try and give us purpose, but it won't be our purpose. It can give us meaning, but it won't be meaningful to us and to our own needs. And this is where Camus says that through our mundane routines in life, we first begin to feel wary of all that life is offering us. Camus says this wariness triggers a conscious impulse in us. We don't just feel wariness, but also this wariness awakens something internal. And the result is either that we return to the chain, as Camus says, or it awakens our conscious examination of our lives. By return to the chain, he means we return to our mundane existence. This might happen if we experience burnout or a lack of motivation. We might recharge ourselves by going on a holiday and coming back renewed, or we might otherwise find some way to rejuvenate ourselves so that we can get back into the grind. We might decide to switch jobs or careers to bring some of that renewed vigor into our work to give our lives a fresh dose of purpose. Probably everyone knows that feeling of excitement when starting a new job. I mean, personally, that excitement lasts just under a year for me. Probably around the nine-month mark, the disillusionment starts to hit hard again, and you need some sort of change, some sort of renewal to keep on going. I would guess that the majority of the time we experience this sort of burnout, we find our way back into the grind. Our goal is often explicitly to overcome this burnout. That's what our society tells us, to be patient or do this or that, to sort of get back into the swing of things. We do what we have to do to cope with the existential facts of our lives, but we don't always recognize any need to actually make a serious change in our lives. Sometimes, though, we do go down that other path that Camus identifies. We awaken to a more conscious examination of our lives. And this can form the basis of an existential crisis, our search for meaning and purpose, our attempt to identify the true value of life. Camus says that when this awakening occurs, we're met with two options, suicide or recovery, as he puts it. We either find meaning, purpose, and value, or we don't. Camus says, and I quote, Everything begins with consciousness, and nothing is worth anything except through it. In this way, we become conscious of our choice, of our freedom to choose between death and a continued existence in this meaningless world. And this choice is what gives our lives value. Even if it is the case that we live in a computer simulation and we're consciously aware of this fact at all times, we still have that choice. And through that choice is where our true power lies. This consciousness of the absurd condition of our lives is also what sets us apart as rational beings in the world. We see ourselves as distinct from all other creatures. Camus says, and I quote, if I were a tree among trees, a cat among animals, this life would have a meaning, or rather, this problem would not arise, for I should belong to this world. He later says, and I quote, This ridiculous reason is what sets me in opposition to all creation. So to sum that up, if I were a cat, I wouldn't be endowed with this intellect and capacity for reason, this ability to pursue any purpose and meaning of my choosing. I would just be a cat doing cat things. A cat doesn't ponder its existence and wonder about the greater meaning of things. A cat is not what we would consider to be a rational being confronted with an irrational world. Now, this might sound a little bit unfair to cats and to other creatures in general. We're assuming here that cats don't have the capacity for reason. 
And sure, it's definitely possible that cats are the greatest existentialist philosophers of all, continually pondering their existence and the meaning of life. It could just be that they become so comfortable in their cushy, domesticated cat lives that they don't bother seeking out a greater purpose or revolting against their oppressors. And that's not the rule. I mean, I will concede here that some of them do revolt. Cats can run away and leave their lives behind, perhaps for no other reason than they wish to assert their freedom. Everything in their domesticated environment tells them that their purpose is here, to stay around, laying in warmth and comfort, to be doted on by humans, to be continuously fed and stimulated by artificial means. That is the purpose we as humans prescribe to our domesticated animals. But there comes a point where the cat might need to assert its freedom and go in search of its own purpose, its own meaning, whether by choice or by instinct. Maybe as humans, we have a similar condition to the domesticated cat. We live in comfort, and we have all of our basic needs taken care of, whether or not we do anything. But when it comes down to self-actualization, that's something we can't do in captivity that's not of our choosing. This is where Camus says that we stand face to face with the irrational. We feel this longing for happiness and reason in our lives. Camus says, quoting him directly, the absurd is born of this confrontation between the human need and the unreasonable silence of the world. This must not be forgotten. This must be clung to because the whole consequence of a life can depend on it. And this is fundamentally what the absurd condition of life is. As humans, we confront the absurd when our rational minds seek meaning in an irrational world that is devoid of meaning. This is our absurd condition. Like a domesticated cat that has all of its needs taken care of but escapes its master anyways and wanders off into the unknown, life itself is absurd. We, too, live our mostly comfortable lives, but at some point we might find that our lives are no longer meaningful to us. This is our existential crisis. This is the absurd itself. And when we go off in search of meaning and purpose, we find that it doesn't exist. When faced with this meaninglessness and this purposelessness, we have a choice, voluntary death or continued searching. Camus recognizes that in this condition we always have the ability to assign meaning to the world through a leap of faith, that this can even be a temptation to our rational minds. Of course, as rational beings, we want to assign some order and reason to the world. Without order, we'd be stuck with anxiety. Camus says this is what the early existentialist philosopher, the original one, Kierkegaard, did. Writing in the 18th century, he recognized the absurdity of life, and to him, the only way out of that absurd condition was by taking a leap of faith. That meant believing in God despite the absurdity of it all. He conceded that no rational being could believe in the irrational existence of a divine creator. Only by taking this leap of faith, Kierkegaard said, could we imbue our lives with some kind of meaning. Nietzsche came along after this and burst Kierkegaard's bubble, as we discussed in the last episode. He said that God is dead, that this leap of faith is untenable because there is no God on the other side of the chasm. Instead, Nietzsche sort of creates his own leap of faith in this idea of the Superman, this person who can go beyond the rational world and transcend it through creating his own meaning and his own morality. Camus, on the other hand, urges us to take a deep breath and look out over that chasm that we're standing over. And rather than taking that leap of faith, he says the following, and I quote, At a certain point on their path, 
the absurd person is tempted. History is not lacking in either religions or prophets, even without gods. You are asked to leap. All you can reply is that you don't fully understand that it isn't obvious. So this is the leap of faith being asked of us by Kierkegaard, but Camus is saying that the person who recognizes the absurd is recognizing that there is no real meaning or purpose. The rational response of the absurd person is to say that they can't possibly understand this idea of the leap of faith. They can't parse their rationality with the irrationality of this act. Taking this irrational leap to apply meaning to existence only works if we're opting to give up our reason. But that's not an option because our reason is what makes us free. Our reason is what shows us what the absurd is in the first place. I'll continue on with Camus, and I quote, Indeed, the absurd person does not want to do anything but what they fully understand. They are assured that this is the sin of pride, but they do not understand the notion of sin, that perhaps hell is in store, but they have not enough imagination to visualize that strange future, that they are losing immortal life, but that seems to them an idle consideration. So, this is the shameful part of religion where they start to talk about sins and consequences and the threat of hell and so on. But again, none of these things can be parsed with rationality. When told that maintaining one's own reason is the sin of pride, how does that make sense? Why is being prideful a sin? Surely pride isn't always a bad thing. And how can a rational person envision hell or an immortal life? Hell seems a cruel punishment for someone simply exercising their capacity for reason. I mean, even Sisyphus rolling a boulder up a hill sounds preferable to going to hell. And why would an immortal life be of more importance than the life we're living right here and now? For the absurd person facing a meaningless existence, what use would an immortal life even be? I'll continue with Camus again, and I quote, An attempt is made to get them to admit their guilt. They feel innocent. To tell the truth, that is all they feel. The absurd person feels their irreparable innocence. This is what allows them everything. What they demand of themselves is to live solely with what they know, to accommodate themselves to what is, and to bring in nothing that is not certain. They are told that nothing is, but this is at least a certainty, and it is with this that they are concerned. They want to find out if it is possible to live without appeal. Camus is saying here that by nature we all start off being innocent, and this is sort of the existentialist motto shining through this idea of existence before essence. The premise of that is that we're born into this life without purpose or meaning. Whereas prior philosophers attempt to understand the essence of what makes a person a person, a human a human, the existentialists say that there is no underlying essence of this kind, that we create our own essence through applying meaning to our own lives. First we're born, and then we create meaning. We're not first born with meaning, that's getting things backwards. In this absurd world we're born into, we're innocent here. We didn't ask to be born, we didn't ask to be rational beings in this irrational world of ours. We didn't ask to be seekers of meaning in a meaningless world. Just as all other creatures come into existence innocent, so do we. Religion would have us believe that we're all born sinners. The existentialists say that we're all born free and innocent, and this is what allows us to become creators of the world. Going back to the simulation punishment, if we were created as simulated beings in this simulated universe, we didn't ask for that. 
being made to be consciously aware of this computer simulation with no meaning attached to it would be a cruel punishment. That's not something we would get to choose for ourselves. But by some other means, as Camus shows us, we do still have a choice. Camus concludes from all of this, and I quote, It was previously a question of finding out whether or not life had to have a meaning to be lived. It now becomes clear, on the contrary, that it will be lived all the better if it has no meaning. Living an experience, a particular fate, is accepting it fully. Camus says that the truest life we can live is one where we're constantly aware of the absurd, of our inevitable death in this meaningless world. Instead of turning away from death or taking a leap of faith to overcome it, we should remain on this precipice, remain perched on the edge of the cliff of the chasm, not taking that leap, not backing away either. It's only by residing here that we can revolt against the meaningless world and the notion of suicide. Camus says that rather than allowing ourselves to forget our future deaths, the absurd person turns towards death and feels released from the pressures of the external world. Existential philosophy sort of started with Kierkegaard's idea of the leap of faith. But taking that leap is the death of our consciousness. We cease being consciously aware of the absurd condition. Camus says we should stay in this absurd condition rather than try to escape it. He says, and I quote, The return to consciousness, the escape from everyday sleep, represent the first steps of absurd freedom. Camus alludes to the person before the realization of the absurd as someone who is asleep, and that allowing objective meaning to be imbued on our lives represents us remaining asleep. We're not woke unless we realize the absurd and take steps towards absurd freedom, according to Camus. So what does that absurd freedom even look like? Camus thinks that we can postulate three things here. He says, and I quote, Thus, I draw from the absurd three consequences, which are my revolt, my freedom, and my passion. By the mere activity of my consciousness, I transform into a rule of life what was an, an invitation to death, and I refuse suicide. I also know, to be sure, of the dull resonance that vibrates throughout these days, yet I have but a word to say, that it is necessary. So let's unpack that a bit. The first thing he's saying here is that we all have the capacity to revolt. We revolt against the absurd, we refuse to accept objective meaning, and we revolt against the notion that a meaningless life leads to suicide. This act of revolt leads to absurd freedom, an absolute freedom from the shackles of the absurd or from any religious belief. We free ourselves from the future and live in the now. The future only becomes important if we forget about the inevitability of death, but we revolt against this inevitability, we live in the present instead. And our passion is the passion for life, the passion for our continued existence in this world. I think that by the activity of consciousness, Camus is talking about the idea of thinking through our condition. The absurd sort of invites us to suicide because our existence is meaningless, but precisely because it is meaningless, we choose to live. We revolt against meaninglessness, we express our freedom against this meaninglessness, and we maintain our passion for living. Camus says that through this conscious process, this activity of consciousness, we can refuse the notion of suicide. We become creators of our own meaning rather than slaves to a meaningless world. 
To choose death would be no better than taking the leap of faith. In both instances, we're fleeing from the absurd, which is our truest reality. Camus also identifies that there's a certain dullness to life, but recognizes that this dullness is necessary. Nietzsche would say that in life we endure suffering, but that this suffering is necessary for a happy life. I think we can take the same point here from Camus, that to enjoy life we also have to endure the dullness that sometimes comes with it. Ultimately, this is the idea that meaning comes through struggle, and we can create our own meaning and purpose in life through the struggle we have with this absurd condition. Any rational person can look at Sisyphus' condition and wish to escape that fate. And yet for him, there is no escape. Even so, Camus ends his Myth of Sisyphus essay with the line, One must imagine Sisyphus happy. He even says that the word joy should not be too much to express what Sisyphus can sometimes feel. And yet, Sisyphus doesn't have the same choice we do. He doesn't have the choice between a voluntary death or a meaningless toil. His condition is different. Sisyphus, through the act of being happy or feeling joy, is his way of sticking it to the god's punishment. Saying, sure, this is a punishment, but my act of defiance, my act of revolt is to find happiness and maybe even joy in this endless toil of pushing a boulder up a hill for all of eternity. Ours is different. Our external condition is the inevitability of death, so we choose between a voluntary death now or a life of meaningless toil until we reach a death not of our choosing. Our revolt against this absurd condition is to live our lives as if there is a purpose or a meaning to them, despite being aware of this absurd condition that there is no purpose to be found here. In this way, we have to act like alchemists, just like Sisyphus turning his punishment into his own happiness and joy. Those of us living mortal lives must turn the meaninglessness of existence and the inevitability of death into a lust for this life. We, as humans, are not Sisyphus caged in the underworld, and nor are we just creatures of this earth with physical confines. Our cage is also a mental one. Our society offers many ways for us to shackle our own minds and even invites us to be the makers of our own confines. To be free, we recognize in each of us a Sisyphean figure, one whose purpose is to continuously suffer, endure endless toil. And instead of turning our backs on this paradigm we find ourselves in, we embrace this absurd reality and choose to seek meaning regardless. Even if it does turn out that we're just simulated beings living in a computer simulation, we would still have this option to choose revolt, to revolt against these confines and to revolt against this existence that was not of our choosing. To me, practicing this revolt means being a seeker of knowledge and wisdom, even though this is something I can't bring with me when I inevitably die and it'll all just fade to nothing. But in the process of creating this podcast and thinking philosophically and encouraging others to do so as well, in this way, I am living my life as a seeker and spreader of knowledge and wisdom. It's an act of revolt against the meaningless of life. I'm creating my own meaning through this endeavor. Nietzsche expresses something similarly in his Joyous Science. He says, and I quote, Life has not deceived or disappointed me. Every year I find it more genuine, more desirable, and more mysterious. Ever since the day when the great liberator came to me, the idea that life might be an experiment for the knowledge seeker, and not a duty, not a tragedy, not a swindle. 
at the very least, existing in this world that doesn't have any inherent meaning or purpose allows us a lot of room to be our own meaning makers. And to me, this is what philosophy is all about, what being a bad philosopher is all about. I don't call this the bad philosopher podcast as a way of putting what we're doing here in opposition to whatever we might call good philosophy. And if by good philosophy, I'm using air quotes here, we mean some philosophical system that claims to have all the answers, or an individual who claims to have all of this wisdom that they can bestow on others who might listen to them, well, I don't think this sort of good philosophy exists. Being a bad philosopher means admitting that we don't have all of the answers and that we never will, but striving for them anyways. We endlessly learn, but we never really attain any of this mystical wisdom we've been aiming at. This is our Sisyphean task. If Sisyphus is able to find any happiness or joy in his endless toil, the source of those feelings aren't going to be in the feeling of accomplishing something. The source of joy and happiness is going to lie in those moments of struggle, with legs, back, and shoulders straining to push that boulder higher up the hill. It's in those small moments when one forgets their punishment and finds themselves fully in the moment, losing themselves in their work. For the bad philosopher, these are the moments of trying to grasp at something, at some fleeting idea or concept, and the moment when you come to some intuition or feeling about something but can't quite find the words or the language to fully grasp it or express it, but we try anyways. This is our revolt. And then there are those small moments where we find ourselves lost in thought or imagination as if our souls have detached themselves from our bodies and are floating freely and untethered through eternity. This is our freedom. Being a bad philosopher is also the act of being humble on our quest for meaning in this meaningless world. We know that there are limits to what we can know. And despite this built-in ambiguity around our capacity to know anything at all with certainty, we strive for knowledge anyways. This is our passion. So while we can't know whether or not we're living in a computer-simulated reality, and we can't know how our lives will end or what awaits us in the future, we can't know with certainty any meaning or purpose in this life other than what we can infer for ourselves, and the only value our lives have is the value that we give them, the thing is, by choosing to go on living this life, we are recognizing that there's a heck of a lot of meaning out there for us to pursue. And while we still draw breath, there's still time for us to pursue it. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been episode two of the Bad Philosopher podcast, and I'll see you on the next one.